Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm pleased to be here in studio on this fine, really nice weather afternoon here in Tucson, Arizona, in studio with our uh, one of our pastors, Sean Richards. Hello. How you doing, bud? Better. Better than usual. Now that the rain's passed, hopefully sinuses will clear up. Yeah, I've been fighting the, the nasty bug that's been going around, and uh, still sound a little raspy, but I feel way better, so thank you for your prayers, and... And I'm glad to be back in studio, helping out, pushing the buttons. And uh, for those of you who may be new, this is a reason for hope. This is a weekday Bible answer program where you, our live stream audience, can ask questions about the Bible, the historic Christian faith, uh, whether faith is reasonable, or perhaps just how to properly interpret and apply a specific passage of Scripture to your life. So if that's you, if you're a skeptic and you kind of wonder, why do Christians seem like they're the kinds of people that would check their brains at the door? Or perhaps you have a, a real honest, skeptical question about something that you feel might be inconsistent, uh, something that might be uh, untrue about the Christian faith. Chime in. Ask us. We would love to tackle those questions. And if we don't know the answer, well, we'll obviously we'll do the research. And our team of pastors here are probably the most <laughs> well-studied, well-researched uh, group of men that I've ever encountered in my 30 years of being in ministry and traveling the globe as a missionary. So it's really, really an honor to be here and just hear what they have to say when people ask their questions. So I'd encourage you to do that, and there's multiple ways you can do so. If you want to just email sort of anonymously or discreetly, uh, that's one way to do it. You can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. You can also join us uh, on Facebook. We live stream, use the comment sections to ask your questions. We'll be monitoring these feeds throughout the program, so if you ask a question, we'll look at it, we'll get to it. And if we don't, we make a catalog of all the questions that people ask, and we try to get to them in future programs. So if you don't hear your question being asked, we'll get to it in the next program. You can also join us on YouTube, our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, <clears throat> search for A Reason for Hope, or you can go straight to our channel, which is youtube.com forward slash at a reason, the number four, and hope. If you want to avoid social media altogether, you can also go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and just click that watch live in the navigation. And if we're live, whether it be a service, like our Wednesday evening Oasis service or a Sunday morning services, which we have at 9 and 11 a.m., we are currently going through the book of Acts in our Sunday service and currently going through the book of Esther in our Wednesday evening services. Uh, there's a comment section, a little prayer request button. Uh, you can create an account, create a profile. Uh, very simple, very quick. It's available when, it's, when we're live. You can use the comment box to ask your questions or just make comments. Uh, we encourage you to utilize that as much as you'd like. <clears throat> and uh, finally, <clears throat> um, if you are interested and are part of our community, we also have a nifty Bible app. So you can not only listen to this program and archived episodes of what we do here on A Reason for Hope. Again, we do this every weekday, Monday through Friday, uh, 4 to 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. That's Arizona time. We don't change our clock, so it's basically the same time here in Arizona every day, all throughout the year. If you're in a different part of the country, you'll have to kind of do the math. But, uh, <laughs> but we have an app where you can download from the Apple or Google Play Store, and the app allows you to not only watch this program, but past services. You can go through the books of the Bible. We are a church that teaches verse by verse, book by book, uh, chapter by chapter. So if you want to, let's say, go through the Gospel of John or the book of Revelation, you can follow our senior pastor as he teaches through those books. Uh, every single verse is uh, taught on, and so you won't miss a single thing. So I'd encourage you to check that out. 
<clears throat> you can also, of course, create chat groups. You can donate. There's a nifty digital Bible. You can leave notes, highlight texts, all kinds of amazing things. Also, if you have a smart device like an Amazon Fire product or a Roku device, you can add our Calvary Christian Fellowship channel to those devices and watch all our services, including this program. And finally, I'd encourage you to follow our senior pastor, Scott Richard, on the X platform, formerly Twitter. You can do so at, at Scott R4H. And we are now live streaming this program, A Reason for Hope, on the X platform. So if you are an Xer <laughs> and you follow senior pastor Scott Richards here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, who uh, um, not only is very active there, but I, like I said, we are now streaming this program, you can tweet, or I don't know if we call it X now, but we, you can X your, your questions there, and we'd be happy to get them. Now, before we get to your questions today, we'll take a moment, Sean, if you wouldn't mind uh, taking a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we navigate through folks' questions. I would not mind. Dad, thank you that we have the honor of being here, and I want to ask that you would fill Adrian and I with your spirit and allow your people to be edified, exhorted, and comforted, as your word always sets out to do. I'll protect us from error, enable us to communicate truth, and to do so clearly in a way where your people are equipped for the sort of things that you would be blessed by through their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That is true. So. Well, normally we would have a little... Um, prophecy update. Is there anything you want to share on that regard, or do you want to get straight into the questions? Not necessarily. Uh, I can bring up Jihad Watch briefly to get you all updated on the goings and comings in that department, but when it comes to the well-being of God's people, I'm sure uh, the elder will be more than equipped to engage with us Wednesday when he comes back. Uh, as far as the events going pl around the world, obviously there's a bit of a business as usual as far as the false prophecy community where this april in the united states in particular there's going to be a solar eclipse and people always jump on that and say oh uh, this is the fulfillment of revelation chapter six and whatever the problem is when we actually look at that in fulfillment of joel chapter two when they say that the moon will turn or the yeah the moon will turn red like blood and the sun like sackcloth they usually leave out that conjoining phrase and these are simultaneous events and obviously a supernatural one because if we're to attribute this to natural phenomena which people well intended though they may be falsely do they would have to present a scenario where the moon is in two different places at once or the sun or both. But the problem is this is undoubtedly a supernatural event because in a solar eclipse, the position of the sun, the earth, and the moon is that the sun, <laughs> earth, have the moon between them. Whereas with a lunar eclipse, it's on the opposite end. So if, as far as the earth and the moon are concerned. So when we're talking about the phenomena we read in Revelation chapter 6. That is, of course, going to be what I believe to be a literal event. There are other people who take different views on biblical prophecy, but we would take a very plain view of the passage. We'd note that it would be in conjunction with a judgment from God, and also noting as well the world reacting to it is going to be after a cataclysmic meteor storm and a global earthquake, so a three-for-one sale, if you will. But the point of emphasis is that when people are seeing this, it's not going to be like what we tend to react to solar or lunar eclipses with, where we go, well, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, 
No, it's going to be something where they recognize that God is working, and they're literally going to plead for the mountains and rocks to fall on them, lest they have to stand in the face or up to the face of the Lamb. They know where these judgments are coming from. We see that same sentiment repeated in Revelation 9, where they cursed God for the plagues that were sent because they cursed him. Talk about digging your hole kind of deep and then digging deeper when you start to see consequences. And of course, in Revelation 19, or 16, excuse me, after the plague of the hailstorm. So the point being made is this when we hear of a rapture date prediction, always fall back on Matthew 24, noting explicitly that no man knows the day or the hour. When people say, oh, this third of a verse out of a prophecy passage is being fulfilled here, well, you can attribute some traits, but we want 100% retention when it comes to our fulfilled prophecies. So don't be concerned about that. When it comes to, again, events and comings and goings regarding Islam, charges falsely down to the letter continue as usual. Uh, Muslims are preaching throughout the UK and France, celebrating and preparing for Ramadan when terrorist attacks are going to, of course, escalate now that Muslims will have more of an excuse and opportunity to take their religion seriously. And there's also uh, a food riot that was staged by Hamas in order to blame Israel for the lack of food when in reality they were the ones that were attacking the aid trucks. So more well, this would be a case where you could literally use the term misinformation. It is a military term meant to deal with military intelligence for the sake of furthering your cause in war. But the point being made is that liars are going to lie, figures are going to figure, and Muslims, of course, fit into both of those categories. We need to make sure these people hear the gospel because following the father of lies is not only a negative benefit towards their well-being in this life, but especially in the next, because the Isa bin Miriam that they claim to worship, or at least claim to honor as a prophet that accomplished nothing and was ultimately uh, reduced to nothing but a failure because Allah did such a great job tricking everybody into making everyone think that he was crucified when he wasn't, read Surah 4157, they're going to find the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So they need to hear the gospel. They need to know the true Jesus. And we also need to stand for Jesus in such a way where we don't cause his name to be blasphemed. Mm. Allah, 2 Samuel 11. <clears throat> Amen. Amen to that. That's true. So going out to the questions. All right. Well, uh, going back to some questions that were asked earlier in the week, uh, let's go with, uh, we had an atheist who asked a, a question about potential Bible contradictions, and the question is, does the Bible contradict itself on whether to honor your parents? Exodus 12, 12 verses Luke, so Luke 9, uh, chapter 9, verses 59 to 62, Jesus said, you know, unless you hate your mother, father, brothers, and sisters, etc. No, 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 it's, you're actually being rational. The contradiction is, um, I believe that passage is when Jesus tells a man to follow him, and he says, let me first marry my father, and and then I'll follow you, and he says, let the dead bury their own dead. I just assumed that that was the... Yeah, you assume too much. Um, (laughs) But the atheist wanted to know if that's a contradiction. Exodus says, honor your father and mother, but Jesus seemed to say, seems to say otherwise. Uh, What do you think, Sean? Did Jesus contradict... Torah? Well, it seems that the first step we should always do, actually, probably before taking a single step, know what a contradiction is, because 50 times out of 50, they don't even 
grant that much. Uh, of course, when someone makes a claim, they are required to provide the proof, but if they provide a challenge, then we're not necessarily uh, put in an unreasonable position in defending it. So if they give specific chapter and verse, which in and of itself is going to be rare, then I think just a plain reading of the passage is going to resolve it and the assumptions that they're making along the way. But before we get into their assumptions, let's work with what both of ours should be, and that is language. When someone says contradiction, it's a lot like the word salads that we're seeing thrown out on the internet today. Genocide doesn't actually mean genocide. It means a war that you happen to be losing, and it doesn't count if it's referring to the people of Israel. When they say misinformation, it doesn't mean a military term and disrupting or dissuading uh, military intelligence for the sake of the betterment of your army and nation. It is just anything that you don't like socially. It doesn't even necessarily have to be false. When we use terms like contradiction, what they mean is that I can somehow represent this to be saying something different, when in reality a contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic, that is the law of non-contradiction. In the simplest way to put it, contradiction, or the law of non-contradiction, is that A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. So, for example, if I were to say that I am a Christian, that I affirm that there is a God, that he revealed himself in a moment of history in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, that God is a trinity, and that I have a relationship with that God through belief in Jesus' death and resurrection, and that the Bible is where I get all this information, I couldn't then at the same time say I am a Muslim which denies that God is a trinity. They claim that he is absolutely one, a monadic monotheist. They would say that Jesus was not God, that he was a prophet that, like we said before, accomplished nothing. They would say that Jesus didn't die on the cross, so obviously he didn't rise from the dead. And then, of course, the Bible, not according to the Quran, of course, but according to every Muslim you'd talk to about the issue, would say it's corrupted. So both claims could not be true at the same time. I could be a Christian. I could be be a modern Muslim, but I can't be both because they fundamentally cancel each other out in the core claims that they're making. So going then out to this claim as far as the Bible's contradiction, what does the first claim say? Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12 is the section of the Ten Commandments says to honor your father and mother, and it even further expounds on this in saying that it may be well with you in the land. It's the first commandment that includes a promised blessing along with it, and every parent said amen. But then we go to Luke chapter 9, and it's apparently going to be an irreconcilable. In no way and in no sense can these two be harmonized. They are claiming the exact opposite thing. So we better expect something really plain, like don't honor your father and mother. Signed, Jesus, probably. Now, let's read the text. They give us Luke chapter 9 and verse 59, so let's start there. We shouldn't, but it says, he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. They tell us to stop at verse 62. So as Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now that's an Old Testament reference, by the way. In the book of 2 Kings chapter 1, when Elijah, not Jah, Shah, but Jah, finds Elisha plowing the field, he 
throws his mantle on him, and he says that you're going to be my successor in the school of the prophets. And he asked to go and do the very thing that this guy was coming up with an excuse for. Now, Elijah obviously wasn't challenged with contradicting Torah in that sense. He was permitted to go home and say goodbye to his family, but he was also reminded of the statement Jesus quotes from the Old Testament and saying, no one looking back can, of course, also plow a field. You're going to get the angle wrong. So what is he saying? Have a purpose in mind to follow God, not to uphold the family business. You can't do a part-time ministry and split hours between us. Now, if that's what Jesus is referencing in this sense, then what ultimately ties us into the previous two verses, in verses 60 and 61, where the guy says, oh, let me go and bury my father. Now, in my conversations, usually they would say, he was going to go to his father's funeral, but Jesus told him not to go. That's when I raise my hand and say, where does it say the father was having a funeral? And then they would say, well, it's implied, because you obviously don't bury someone that's still alive, right? Well, not under ideal circumstances anyway. And then I would ask them once again, what do you think is being said here? And they'd said, he's saying that he needs to go and bury his father right then and there. Well, once again, where is the then and there? Where is the memorial? You're reading things into the passage. What is Jesus saying? You follow me. What does the guy say? Let me bury my father. Does he specify when that's going to be? No. Do we have examples of other instances where this would be used in a future tense or a past tense or obviously present? Well, yes, we do. Middle Eastern culture, the idea of let me bury my father first was the idea, let me wait till my dad dies. And, and get the I'll inheritance follow. so that I have money and I don't have to worry about working. And then I can follow you because I'll have a bunch of cash. Using the same <laughs> principle that was referenced in the next example, when Elijah was going to commission Elisha to follow him and said, focus on your calling from God. So here's the point. Can we reconcile these passages? Absolutely. Should we reconcile these passages? Well, that's reasonable. If you're going to approach a text and want to represent it properly, your first assumption isn't that it's wrong. When you test something, you have the desire to seek truth, but if something's in error, it's going to be apparent. When a contradiction challenge is leveled like this, it's coming from one of two sources, someone who's lying or someone who's misinformed, or both. But the point is, if someone actually knows what a contradiction is, they wouldn't use this passage in Challenge with Exodus 20. Why? Because they didn't even bother to define what honor your father and mother means. They're hoping for, and you're going to see this every time we deal with a contradiction, a very broad definition. This can mean a ton of things to honor your father and mother. We're not going to narrow it down. We don't have to be specific. But then when it comes to the meaning of let me bury my father, I insist on only this definition, that he was going to go to his memorial, that he was going to be buried that day, and that there is no possible definition. Now, wait a minute. Where do you see that in Exodus 20.12? Why is that in fundamental conflict? Where is that in the passage? And note, implied isn't a source. Trust me, bro, isn't a source. And atheist.com <laughs> is not a good source. Why? Because they have had a reputation of putting these things forward seriously, and we've been responding to them again and again and again for the last 200 years. To begin in Wellhouse and tried this, they couldn't even stand up against the Vatican. When it ultimately came down to it, if you read what comes down to it, excuse me, read the passage, ask where's the difference, note inconsistencies, broad definition of Exodus 2012, but very narrow definition 
of Luke chapter 9 and verse 59 through 62. And what do you get? Inconsistency, inaccuracy, and a misrepresentation of what a contradiction even means. Can you reconcile these things? Absolutely. Should you? Not always. But when it ultimately comes down to it, make sure that you catch them out on those little manipulations. Broad definition, narrow definition. On your father and mother, whatever that means. Bury my father. This is exactly what this means. Hmm. When you can't represent that in the text. I, I had always wondered that maybe is because, you know, the Jewish burial, they do the mummification, and then a year later they put the bones, put in, the the bones in the ossuary. And I thought, well, maybe he was just talking about, hey, my dad's body is like, it's time to put him in a box. And well, I thought, how long would that take? Yeah, and I don't think Jesus would have been, no, that's don't do that. <laughs> you can't have an extra half hour to move a box to a box. So clearly he was talking, uh, I have things I need to do. Yeah, I think it's a very good answer. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for the question. That was a really good question. Uh, I mean, it's a valid question, but um, um, I think that if you look at the text carefully, the answer is also obvious. <laughs> yeah, let's hope that they were just misinformed and not lying. Yeah. Or even better, they were lied to. Yeah, that, that happens often because you know, that's what's the problem when you take Bible passages out of their context and you isolate, you commit the the error of eisegesis, you're isolating a text, you're not paying attention to the meanings of the words, uh, the intentions of the authors, the, the historical, grammatical, the linguistic context. You're just taking it out in English and going, see, uh, it sounds, you know, and that's, that's bad hermeneutics. Uh, Bob wants to know, <clears throat> could you please comment on what's meant in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22? Who are the simple ones? Proverbs 1.22. Let's see. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Uh, let me read the whole passage because this is uh, in the poetic context like we're talking about here. When you read the book of Proverbs, you're going to run into generally four types of poetry. You're going to see a couplet, which is very common, a coupling of this idea is like this idea. You understand what this is, and it's meant to illustrate this to a finer point. Another one, which you'll see just as often, if not more, is a contrast. You have the lesser to the greater, sometimes bad to good, but also mm -hmm. sometimes good to best. And that's another example. There are personifications, which is to take something that isn't human and give it human-like traits. Uh, for example, there's a proverb that says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He searches the earth and all, all that stuff. But is it to say God's literally an eyeball mm -hmm. monster? No, it's saying, using a human feature of sight, what we used to see, to say God sees everything. That would be how you'd handle that based on the genre of the poem. And then, of course, this one, which is a parable and personification, but a story that's meant to illustrate a finer point. Yeah. Now, this personification in particular is telling a story of wisdom, mm -hmm. personified, interestingly enough, as you will see in a second, verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses and at the openings of the gates of the city. She speaks her words, and then that's her opening statement. She goes on to say, turn at my rebuke, surely I will pour out my spirit upon you. That's interesting phrasing. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. 
I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm, when the destruction comes from a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, and I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. It goes on to emphasize the point. But what is the crux of that passage? First of all, the genre. It's a parable of a woman and a apparently intelligent woman because her name itself is wisdom that Mm -hmm. would also classify it as a personification because wisdom isn't actually a woman let alone an actual entity or being it's a concept being illustrated as someone that -hmm. a guy would generally want to listen to what do i mean by that well if a girl is available and wants your attention okay (laughs) what do you got here uh later proverbs even note wisdom's got lots of food available and she's attractive and again solomon was speaking to rehoboam his son so or any of his children and he's like okay how do i get a teenage boy's attention (laughs) okay attractive girl with food and if she's crying out in the marketplace that means it's a public crying out a public declaration of hey i got some good things to share some good things to say listen to me and then what happens the ones who don't listen to her when they end up seeing the consequences of their actions she laughs at them now does this mean that there's some goddess entity out there that's going to pour out her second holy spirit on her devoted followers and that she's going to somehow play this role. Jehovah's Witnesses will try and argue this, by the way. No, when we're talking about a poem, a personification, an illustration meant to illustrate a finer point, what's the picture? You knew what the right thing to do was. You see the consequences and when you were stupid. (laughs) And then what do you say? Well, I want to learn the right thing now. What's wisdom going to tell you? It's too late. You should have made a good decision beforehand. You don't say, I need to practice good financial training when you're you're impoverished, Mm -hmm. right? You don't make good decisions as far as your driving habits are concerned when you're already in the car wreck. Wisdom saying, I'm available. Learn from me, you simple ones. And and this is where we'll get to the answer to your question, Bob. Then you'll know the fear of the Lord. If you don't hear from me, you don't choose the fear of the Lord, I ain't going to help you. I'm going to be the one thing that's laughing at you because you're like, should have known that. Yeah. So what then is the simple one? It's the person who knows they need they they need something to learn here. The they're being person. they're stubbornly and selfishly ignoring the wisdom. That's yeah. why they're being called naive. Some translations use the word naive ones, inexperienced ones, simple ones, uh, or how long will you who are simple love? your simple ways. (laughs) Yeah, and the first step to becoming smart is to acknowledge you're dumb. If you think you know everything, you're not going to want to learn something. But if you are the kind of person that Mm. learns something, wisdom's going to call out to you and say, hey, fool, want to be wise? What's the foolish response? It's, I'm wise. I'm not a fool. I don't need you. Have fun then. But that's the point of the proverb. Now, is this the personification and the contrast? Because in verse 23... It talks about those who do respond. So there's a little contrast of the simple ones are the ones who are refusing to listen to wisdom, uh, which is the beginning of, of fearing the Lord, which is fearing the Lord. And th- then there are those who respond in verse 23. What, how does that word that? 
I think it would be building up on a prior proverb that gives Solomon reason to illustrate it this way, because there is an earlier couplet where it note, or a contrast, excuse me, where it notes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Mm. And it goes on to build up that point. There's those fools, simple ones, naive, inexperienced, that were how do you again. identify them? Because they despise instruction. What's mm. the fear of the Lord? Someone who wants to learn. And then here's an example. You could also say just intuitively, pride versus humility. Yeah. A dishonest view of yourself versus an honest view of yourself. Hmm. Wow. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but think as to have sound judgment. Romans 12, I think. Somewhere in the ballpark. <laughs> we'll, we'll verify, but... <laughs> Great. Thank you, Bob, for the question. Hope that was helpful for you. And we really appreciate your um, faithfulness to being on the program on a consistent basis. Um, Mike Hill wants to know, what are the practical steps to take when testing yourself to see if you are in the faith? Interesting, there is a passage that, that indicates some kind of personal testing or to that you will be tested. So yeah. uh, how does someone sort of initiate that on their own? I mean, obviously the Lord is in control of that, and he is working both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He will bring to perfection, Philippians 1.6, that which he started, he will complete it. But uh, uh, how, how can we, if we're struggling and maybe doubting, how can we test ourselves to see if we need to reevaluate our original faith commitment? Maybe, maybe we're not in God's family after all. Well, that's not a wrong question to ask, but it is a wrong conclusion to come to if you just base it on your emotions. Um, I believe that 2 Corinthians 13, yes, I have it underlined, believe it or not, says, examine yourselves to, as to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves, and then notice it continues. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now, this is in the concluding passage of Second Corinthians, and Paul has basically spent the whole book putting his credentials on the table, because in Corinth, a bunch of false prophets had risen up and said, don't listen to Paul. Paul's one of those, like, you know, rogue apostles. We're, we're sent from Jerusalem. We're the real guys. Oh, and by the way, you have to cut something off your body in order to be saved. Well, Paul obviously wasn't going to take that sitting down, and the Holy Spirit wasn't either, so they worked together, and they got that book. But here's the point. In the passage, we're given the standard. Jesus Christ is in you. Okay, how do you get there? Well, obviously, it's not a first century Middle Eastern carpenter that's literally inside of me. So we're describing something spiritual here. How do I get indwelt by God in the sense of passing this test that I'm a part of the family of God? Well, the best place to start if you want to know if you got lost along the way is where you started. How do I come to a relationship with Jesus in the first place? I can go to a couple passages. We'll start with Jesus' own words when he was asked, How may we work the works of God? This is John chapter 6 and verse 28. Jesus' response was, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Okay, so if I'm believing Jesus, what about him specifically? <laughs> that is the question, isn't it? Well, Let's go to some more examples. If we're asking a guy like Paul, we can go to his fundamentals in Romans chapter 
uh, chapter 10 and verse 9, where it says, if you confess, literally to say the same thing with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, literally Jehovah, Yahweh, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what he did to prove it, you will be saved. And then it goes on to quote <coughs> the Old Testament, believe it or not, in order to verify that. So if that's our framework, if I say, okay, am I really a part of the family of God? Well, how did I get adopted in the first place? How do I get adopted? Can I point to a time in my life where I've consciously recognized who Jesus is and what he did to prove it? If not, then I encourage you, start there. But if you can do that and you're asking, well, I'm just not seeing a lot of fruit, or I'm just not seeing a lot of, I, I've committed this sin, or I keep committing this sin, and all these other things. Well, are those things the criterion? Obviously, we go to passages like Second Peter chapter 1, and we should be growing and abounding in the faith. But what's interesting about that is it's more often than not our emotions manipulating us rather than the Holy Spirit convicting us, drawing us closer to Him. Because at the end of those conversations, where does it ultimately leave you? I'm so horrible, I'm so wretched, I'm so depraved. Every single conversation starts and ends with me. But note that this is where our metric, the things that we should be testing ourselves to look for, are ultimately found. Second Peter 1 and verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, our trust with reason, the basis for our salvation, virtue. So, if I trust God's promises, that should make a tangible impact on how I, not necessarily act yet, but certainly how I view things. Should I be taking in this kind of input? Should I be producing that kind of output? Won't go into specifics, but you get the idea. So virtue should be added to faith, to virtue knowledge. Now, people can have a sense of right and wrong, but if they can't show chapter and verse, that's oftentimes where you get into legalism, saying, you shouldn't be doing that. Was that in the Bible? No, but it's not Christian. Well, how do you define Christ-like if not Christ's biographies? We have four of them. So noting that, we should add to our virtue knowledge, not just know right and wrong, but where to support the right from the wrong. To knowledge, self-control. So building on that point, ways you can test spiritual growth in your life isn't just knowing right from wrong, but practically applying it, saying, God, by your spirit, you know, the fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5 says, is self-control, right? Verse 23, among other things, show me how to restrain myself to be able to say, I don't want to do the things that dishonor you. And even better, I want to proactively pursue the things that do honor you. Because no, control isn't just about restraint. It's also about opportunity, knowing when to use your strength. So it builds on that point. To self-control, perseverance. So you're not just doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things, but you're continuing in that. Because if you're like anyone else in human history ever, myself included, where do our strength and weaknesses most tend to or most often tend to manifest? It's when we're doing great not so much when we're doing not so great, and both of those times have their seasons. So as you develop and grow, not just knowing right from wrong, not just wanting to do what's right, but also being able to keep up those things. And notice he's not setting any of these things up as prerequisites for salvation. Salvation's by grace through faith, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9 says. So if that's where we started, what Peter's talking about is how we continue in these things, what to look for. Perseverance notes, he adds to that, godliness. 
you demonstrate character, or more specifically, God's character over time, it's going to show in the lives of those around you, being an example of God's heart. But notice this as well, not just godliness, who you are as a person, but how you treat his creation. To brotherly kindness, or excuse me, to godliness, brotherly kindness. Then to brotherly kindness, he notes at the peak, love. The 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 style of love. The kind of love that if we have that down as a spiritual gift, we've literally encompassed all the work that God wants to do in and through our lives. Not to say the work is done, but noting that alongside brotherly kindness, alongside perseverance, alongside self-control, Peter comes to this conclusion, verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound. So you don't just point to one or two moments in your life where, you know, I had some self-control there, or, oh, I, I know my Bible. No, not just that they're there, they're yours, but they abound. Literally, they've set up their tent in your life, that they're very comfortable there. It says, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things, what things? The things he was just talking about that define the Christian life, is short-sighted even to blindness, and here's the presumption and point that he's making, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Notice it doesn't say that he's no longer cleansed. It's that we're not remembering where we started, what faith has accomplished. So Paul's test is, what's your faith in? If you're asking, okay, now going through 2 Peter 1, I don't see as much of this stuff as I like. Well, that would be an example of someone being from the self-control, the perseverance stage of things. But the point of all this isn't to say, I must live the 100% Christian life or I'm not Christian. No, it's a growing process, a lifelong process. Some things will be immediate, other things probably still ongoing. But the point needs to be understood that both Paul, both Peter, and most importantly, Jesus himself understood it all starts with faith. What's your trust based on, and what reasons do you have to trust those things? Did Jesus rise from the dead? What's that to prove that he was God? If you have those things down, that's the test. But if you have passed that test, then note these are the things that make you more certain of that beginning work, because all of these things have to be and will only be a work of God. So understand that, and I think you'll be fine. Awesome. Thank you. So in summary, then, Ephesians, salvation, we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is not by works, it is the gift of God. Romans 10, faith is... Uh, Jesus is Lord, and God faith, raised him from the dead. Yeah, faith comes by hearing the message concerning Christ. That's Jesus is Lord, and God raised him from the dead. And then Peter saying, that is the foundational faith. Add to those things, quote-unquote, <laughs> the Christian life. Uh, Romans 8, that God has predetermined that each believer would be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's the bottom line, right? Right. Very encouraging. Thanks for the good question. I think, I, I bet you a lot of believers really struggle with that. And um, um, what is that uh, passage in 1 John? I, I say to you, those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. I'll, I'll verify. I'll 1 John, uh, yeah. <clears throat> First John's something, something. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. We've got uh, a question from First John five thirteen. 
Yeah. <clears throat> I write to these I write you these things so that you may know that you believe in the Son of God. Uh, well, you could probably read it better than I can try to recite it from memory. <clears throat> uh, good question here from, um, well, I don't know who's it from, but <clears throat> I thought we could tackle it. Uh, is repression, uh, repression? Yeah, repression biblical. I'm assuming they're referring to the practice of psychoanalysis analysis of, of repression, repressed memories, the idea that repressed if you emotions, experienced... Yeah. Uh, trauma as a child, your conscious mind will remove it from memory so that you don't arouse that level of anxiety. But it comes out in other ways. Um, yeah, does the Bible have any references to that concept? Uh, not directly and also not indirectly, but we'll make sure that we're clarifying what we mean, because like with the contradiction issue, you tack someone home on this, you're going to see some inconsistencies on what they mean by and what is meant by. So yeah. when we're talking about repression, let's first go to the source. This was a, you mentioned psychoanalysis. That was a system of psychology and therapy put together by an atheist by the name of Sigmund Freud in Germany. Now, regardless of your opinions of Europe, the principles that he was basing this system of counseling on do have borderline Judeo-Christian sources and that we need community in order to resolve trauma, but it was also coming from an atheistic worldview and noting that there is, and, and there's other philosophies he was basing this off of, but there is no personal responsibility. We're just dancing to the tune of our DNA. Mm -hmm. So it's eliminating the concept <clears throat> of self-control. It's attributing all of our actions, attitudes, and outlooks to how our brain is processing trauma. That we're just machines that are pre-programmed to act however they're gonna act. And the benefit of dealing with repressed memories or repressed anger or repressed, you know, other perspectives, especially towards your mother, are ultimately to bring those to the surface so you can deal with them in a better context. But notice that the goal of dealing with those things is so mm -hmm. that you can dance to a different tune. It's yeah. not to promote any form of self-control. <clears throat> So the working assumption, obviously, is contrary to a lot of Scripture. However, there is an idea in this that's correct, in that when Jesus said what is spoken in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. When man hides in his heart will be laid open and bare before the Lord. Mm. So the idea of repressed anger or repressed lust or repressed whatever, the idea that we try to hide aspects of ourselves not being healthy, <laughs> let, let, yeah. let's just note that point, is in fact something that you could find biblical parallels with. Now notice not intersections, parallel lines never touch, but they're both pointed the same direction, so that's at least something it has going for it. But as far as, you know, getting professional counseling and stuff, you know, oh, real therapy online, and we've got this ad on YouTube every five seconds, well, they're coming towards or dealing with your problems from a worldview that eliminates the possibility of dealing with the heart, and it confuses the heart with the mind, and, and in the mind they would uh, split it up into three concepts, the id, the ego, and the superego, meaning your base self, hmm. your practical self, the societal <laughs> self, and your ideal self, and it's all based on this principle of self-focus, self-improvement, self-actualization. Hmm. 
and, and, it, and it's all in the realm of fantasy because just like the id being reduced to the baser man is also not a biblical principle. We would mm. call it fallen, and that's because of a spiritual decision, not a default setting. We're also noting the superego can either be something you set up for yourself, or we would say it's a spiritual goal that's only possible through the Holy Spirit, not necessarily through counseling or community and regressive therapies, if you even want to go that direction. Right, yeah, that's that's where the danger comes in, because when you think about repression, there's two types. There's the, if you think about it, there's the conscious, where I'm, I'm let's say I'm angry, and I'm just not dealing with it. I'm conscious of it, I know why I'm angry, and I'm harboring it, and the Bible does communicate directly to harboring you know, do not even, if you know your brother has sinned against you or, you, or your, your brother has something against you, don't even worship God. Deal with it. Stop that. and go and deal with, re- reconcile, then you can worship and honor God and offer your sacrifices. Yeah. So God obviously holds that in very high esteem. The danger, you know, with my background as an illusionist, is the quote-unquote repression, repressed memories. Uh, in the early 90s, there was a huge movement of and within the church, within Christianity, here especially in the West, <clears throat> where people were going into what's called regression therapy, where they would be put into a hypnotic state, uh, into an altered state of consciousness, and then the counselor would guide the person into uncovering memories from their early childhood. And what they were discovering was is that many of these memories uncovered lots of abuse, Satanism, Parents were being dragged to prison. I had dear friends who who's, uh, weren't even allowed to see their grandchildren because their mother had a repressed memory of their father sexually abusing them, on and on and on. And I was always kind of interested in this because there was this principle, this, this trend that psychologists discover with children called false memory syndrome. The idea that if you were to, they, what they did is they put children in a room with recordings, and then they asked the kids afterwards these leading questions, and the kids made up all sorts of things that never ever happened. Most and they of the were, time were from movies. And they were convinced though that they were telling the truth because your mind can recreate memories that didn't happen. But your mind, you cannot tell whether what you're visualizing was actually a memory that you really experienced or something you made up because it's not a real memory. You didn't remember it. You were put into an altered state of consciousness to try to uncover it. And in curiosity of this, myself and my co-author, Rod Robinson, we had uh, a really great lunch with an author named Paul Simpson. He was also a therapist. He practiced regression therapy. He wrote a book called uh, Second Sight, where he discovered that these Christians who were practicing uh, psychology and doing these regression therapy sessions that most of the time these memories were false and it was causing so much trauma in the church <clears throat> that he had to go like on a crusade to literally tell the psychology world this is bad you should not regression therapy does not uncover repressed memories because we are so capable of inventing memories and being convinced that what I have visualized as a child, something that I did not experience, but I have now visualized it, I believe it, and it's a lie. And so we, uh, that part of the, 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 the practice is extraordinarily dangerous. And if you read his book, Second Sight, Paul Simpson, uh, he goes into the kinds of people, the kinds of personality types that are more prone towards, uh, he calls them type five or fantasy prone personalities, these folks who just are 
usually creatives and are very prone to, again, they put him in a hypnotic state. We're going to go back to your childhood and uncover all these repressed memories. And so we have to question, it's one thing to ask, is the concept biblical? But it's another thing to ask, is the concept even on a secular level, is there any evidence that it even is true? If it's a memory that we don't know that we experience, how do we know that what we've uncovered came out of our imagination or actually was a memory that we actually had? Yeah, and again, I mentioned it separately because not everyone who deals with or works in regret or repressed therapy necessarily resorts to regressive therapy in order to deal with it, but it comes from that worldview. So based on the fruit, based on the assumptions, based on the origins, and most importantly, based on some very, very fundamental errors that are contrary to Scripture, I would say that no, it's not biblical, and if you are seeking counseling that's dealing heavy with these things, understand that it is as much a pursuit of truth through self-deception sort that out for a minute, (laughs) as much as it is using self-deception in order to work out unpleasant truths, which is, of course, going to be just as contradictory as the first and the actual meaning of that term. So we wouldn't say it's biblical. We would note there are principles that are true in it, but that's true of a lot of things that aren't necessarily biblical. We'd say it's more in line with a parallel, but just understand that. The fact that we can fool ourselves some of the time, we can fool others most of the time, we can't fool God any of the time. That's why David said in the Psalms, seek me and know me. Search my heart for inward faults that I might not sin against you. This isn't pro-repression, but it's the idea of I'm so sinful, I'm even willing to lie to myself if it means ultimately that I'm going to get out of a guilt that I need to deal with right away or that I'm dealing with in an ongoing sense because Mm. he was talking about another incident in his life in that sense. Mm. Well, good question, good stuff. Thank you, Sean, for that uh, breakdown and... Uh, We have one more question. We have time to get to some of the questions we missed, but uh, Color Outside the Lines wanted to know, was there ever a time in the Bible that there was woke stuff? Uh, That's a good question. You know, uh, I guess we'd have to first define, what do we we mean by woke stuff? Woke, uh, generally used in the West United States in reference to leftist policies and a dehumanizing perspective of equity. But the actual definition from the people who put it forward are like, I got woke up or woken up. It's that you are suddenly aware of something, that you see things in a way where you've been pulled out of the matrix, to use the sci-fi reference, that you now see things accurately and the underlying truths behind everything. And so the principle behind wokeism or the woke ideology is that you're actually dealing with reality in a way that no one else can. Now, biblically, and of course, they're, what they've been woken up to is usually based on three principles, the first being Marxism, that the world is seen through the oppressor and the oppressed, no in between, and that the ethics are always on the side of the oppressed, regardless of what they're doing, to fight oppression, which you also have to define loosely as someone with just a better quality of life, and that, of course, makes you evil for some reason. That's not a biblical view. The principle of Marxism would build around that idea that you're aware of who's the oppressed and the oppressor, and that, of course, would be, in this case, just a justification for anti-Semitism and desiring the heart of Satan wherever it would be applied. 
another principle that wokeism is based off of it's like i mentioned the idea of equity that there's not only an obligation in society to produce equal opportunity which is virtuous but equal outcome which is impossible that's what the dei movement even especially in the corporate world is all about which also subscribes to the woke ideology the principle is that you should oppress interestingly yeah. enough people with <clears throat> Uh, higher success rates or higher levels of opportunity or higher statistics for success and promote even unjustly and to the person as well as to the or those around them opportunities that they're not equipped for or that they don't even want. That's what Ibrahim X. Kendi says. He says that in order to deal with past oppression, you must oppress. Like, that is exact. That's well, his not documentary just... <laughs> is that white people can't connect with reality, so let that speak for his character. Um, and his statement, anti-racist, by the way, I've made jokes about that, mm -hmm. but uh, the principle <clears throat> of equity also is another one that associates with wokeism, and we'll get to the biblical relevance. The answer is yes to two accounts. The third that usually defines wokeism is the idea of answering wrongs with, as you mentioned, another wrong, mm -hmm. that because this was overbalanced, on principles that may or may not even be true and generally aren't, yeah. I must counterbalance that by doing exactly what I perceive them to have done. Yeah. So all based on self or self uh, victimization, promotion of oppression, and identifying the oppressed on the basis of unjust grounds. Now, the New Testament example of this woke principle is was actually the second heresy of the Christian Church. Uh, heresy means other than orthodox or something contrary to the actual meanings of the text. Mm. When the Galatian heresy wasn't necessarily resolved, but resoundly answered at the First Council of Jerusalem, we read that in the book of Acts. It was the principle that in order to worship the Jewish Messiah, he needed to become Jewish. Now, as society is always prone to do, when we correct a mistake, we usually overcorrect it and create a new mistake. And so the principle was to, instead of reading so much of Jewish culture and Hebrew, I guess, necessity into the belief in the Jewish Messiah, the overabundance of non-Hebrew people in the Christian church began reading their Greek and pagan philosophies into Christianity, and this was called Gnosticism. Now, Gnostic, for those of you who speak English, uh, think of the term like gnome. It starts with a G, but the G is silent. It's all about that secret underlying yeah. reality, the idea that true spiritual enlightenment is only reserved for those who are in that secret G section, yeah. that they are the ones with the hidden knowledge, they're the ones who were given the special revelations, and it got into very weird places. So the Gnostic belief that this elect group of people is given special spiritual insight and sees Christianity the right way, it's... I wouldn't say borrowing because wokeism is much later, but it's the same principle of saying we're the enlightened ones and you feeble masses are just deluding yourselves, mm -hmm. despite the fact all of my principles are based on verifiable lies. That would be a, a New Testament example. The old were examples of people, again, recognized as false prophets, but people, say for instance, a uh, critic of Jeremiah's, would it's just basically prophesy and speak contrary to what God was legitimately saying. Mm. Um, a specific example, I'm 
forgetting his name right off the bat, but you can verify the event. I'll give you as much details as I do remember. Um, Jeremiah said that Babylon was coming, and he spent the majority of his life emphasizing, we've crossed the line, we're going to go 70 years into captivity, there will be restoration, but the judgment's not going to be abated. This false prophet, I want to say Shebna, but I may be wrong at that, um, came in with this big pair of horns and started like you know bullying people around with it and saying that no one will overcome the the horns of the lord that the spirit of god is here and that he cannot depart and stuff and jeremiah in response broke the horns and he was saying you're speaking contrary to the law the words of the lord and then he came in with brass horns and says the horns of the lord will not be broken and stuff and so he says hey if you're i'd love for you to be right i'd I'm, they call me the weeping prophet for a reason. Mm-hmm. I don't like delivering this news. But if I'm a true prophet and this isn't going to happen and I've been dedicating my whole life to a lie, hey, great. But here's the problem. I'm not. And you as a false prophet are under condemnation of God. You will die within the year. And he did. So here's the point. When people are making up my truth my worldview, my reality, and enforcing that on those around them, and then at the same time saying, my oppression of others and victimizing of myself to stay in that ability or maintain that ability to oppress others is a principle that's not new to humanity. It's just basically uh, been flown under different flags, both in and outside of the church. Now, are people inconsistent today? Yes. Have they been? Yes. Will they continue to be? Also, yes. Just let it not be so among you. No no woke Christians. <laughs> I think we can finish on that. Now, just the concept of being awakened, though, that's not problematic. Uh, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. The idea of, the idea of being awakened is okay. It's what you're awakening to is the problem with Which our modern on a lot. use yeah. of the... Yeah. Uh, because we, we all Christians have gone woke in the sense that I was a sinner and I was lost and now I have found Jesus. So I've, I've been awakened to salvation. Not Karl Marx. Not Karl Marx. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the program. We'll see you again on Monday. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.